0: That might be a sign of a good investment. When yes. when you say I can't find a good analogous uh, way of explaining this, th- that might be a really good sign. It's not absolutely. The Uber, it's not the Uber of anything or the Netflix of anything.
1: Right. Exactly. And, and um, we love those opportunities.
0: I'm Scott McGrew. Welcome to Sand Hill Road. Growing up, I had an uncle who worked in marketing and was on the very cutting edge of all things cool. He and other marketers would send products to test markets, but sometimes he would reroute them home to me. Which is why I had Pop Rocks before any kid had ever heard of them. And a handheld game named Merlin. And before that, the very first video game system... The Magnavox Odyssey.
1: Odyssey easily attaches to any brand TV, black and white or color, to create a closed-circuit electronic playground.
0: So I've been playing video games since the early 70s. I still play video games. Video games used to be for kids. But for those of us who were kids when they were invented, we've stuck with it. That's hundreds of millions of American adults. So uh, tell me, tell me about growing up as a nerdy gamer. I mean, really set the stage for me. What what year are we looking at? What platform are we looking at? And obviously, what game was your favorite?
1: Yeah, you know what's interesting. I have a pretty unique mix of, I think, uh, backgrounds of growing up. Um, you know, being the the eldest child of an immigrant um, set of parents, and growing up in Dallas, Texas.
0: That's Rick Yang, head of consumer investing at venture capital firm NEA. Video games are part of his
1: portfolio. I was a student athlete at the same time, so I grew up. My my parents were um, really supportive of everything I did, and I grew up as a swimmer, and that took up a lot of my time um, all the way from you know junior high, high school, and at the same time, you know, I was uh, I was very much a gamer, um, mostly across. Uh, mostly a PC gamer at the time, um, a lot of actually blizzard IPS so a lot of Starcraft, Warcraft, World of Warcraft, Ultima Online, um, very into online gaming sort of in the high school years and uh, you know being both a, a, a student and an athlete, there wasn't a whole lot of time for gaming and I still remember you know setting setting alarms in the middle of the night to game with my friends um, because there wasn't any other time to to do it. Uh, but, um, you know, have some really fond memories and still have very, very close friends from kind of growing up and, and gaming with them. And, and, uh, the beauty is now, even though we're, we're all, you know, we have our careers and we've got kids and we've got all sorts of stuff. We still can find time every once in a while, uh, to hop on and, and, um, play some multiplayer games, which is great. What's your game of choice now? You know, it kind of fluctuates, right? There's the classic of League of Legends, uh, certainly Call of Duty. I'm going to make one more comment here about how popular
0: video games are among adults, and then I'll trust you have the picture. Six million people play Call of Duty every day. That's just one game. Microsoft bought Call of Duty maker Activision for $68. Billion dollars. Sony just bought game studio Bungie, maker of Halo, for three and a half
1: billion. You know, Halo. Uh, the new Halo just came out on PC, um, which has been fun too. And it's just whatever, whatever I can fit in these days with uh, the kiddos running around. I've got three young kids who aren't quite of gaming age yet, but I'm <laughs> waiting that day very anxiously. Um, so my uh, my oldest. Uh, child is uh, now five and uh, he's, he's probably getting close to being able to play a couple of the uh, Switch games with me. So I'm um I'm excited about that. Now, non
0: gamers won't realize that there are, you know, there there's a division in gaming, and that is the PC gamers yeah. and the console gamers. Yeah. Uh, you're a PC gamer, to, so the non gamer that means you're you're if you're playing a, a first person shooter, you're aiming your gun with your mouse and you're using a couple of keys on the keyboard to move your character around the world. Why why PC gamer and not a not an Xbox gamer or, or PlayStation?
1: You know, I had always just um, I've been very fortunate to kind of grow up and and, um, you know, be able to to build a gaming PC. And I had a lot of fun. Actually, I had, you know, one of my first kind of hobbies was uh, building gaming PCs for friends and and family members and things like that. Um, I've also been a, a console gamer, but a lot of it was just built over the Internet, you know, in the early days of and, and kind of going back to your question about, you know, in the 90s. We were playing Warcraft two over dial up. You know, you had to disable call waiting. Um, it was a luxury to have two lines, so you know your your game wouldn't get interrupted if somebody called you on that same dial up line at the same time. Um, so there there was just a lot of uh, a lot of online gaming that I did very early on before some of the consoles kind of came up with the um, networked multiplayer. Um, and, you know, me and my circle of friends, we used to have LAN parties where we'd all take our mm-hmm. our PCs and uh, lug them around and monitors and and spend a couple hours at the time dealing with network issues and TCP IP issues. And, uh, and it's just something that, you know, is very nostalgic because today you just fire up whatever and you're online and you're playing with people all over the world in seconds.
0: So I, you know, one of my theories also about PC versus console is you know, your, your parents wouldn't necessarily buy you a Nintendo, but they might buy you a computer. And then if right. they see you, you know, monkeying around with the graphics card inside, they think, Oh, he's doing very smart computer things. Yeah. And it's like, no, I'm just making my gaming rig better.
1: <laughs> you know, I, what's interesting is my, uh, my dad actually, um, is an entrepreneur is a business owner. He works in sort of the tech industry and, and has always done so. And, um, you know, given what I do now as a venture capitalist, having been in Silicon Valley now for, I guess, two decades plus, um, it's funny looking back. But I I still remember growing up. I just thought of my dad as like a small business owner, which is, you know, what what people used to think of entrepreneurs as, right? Yes, um, that's true. And, yeah, and anywhere outside of Silicon Valley back in the '80s and '90s, you know, these are small business owners, and um, and now, uh, you know, talking about cultural relevance, I think. Even our industry and sort of the the idea of being an entrepreneur has been has become very mainstream and has become sort of very culturally relevant in a way that it didn't used to be. Um, but you know, I was fortunate that my father was in the industry, and I still remember you know early, early on, even before sort of the PC gaming um, period of my upbringing. It was just playing around on kind of the early PCs, playing around in DOS and. Um, I st- actually like one of my very first gaming memories was playing wheel of fortune on DOS. Uh, <laughs> and, and that was sort of like, with the, with the, the sort of the eight bit music. Exactly. And that was the cutting edge at the time.
0: <laughs> I'm trying to think of what my first, uh, uh gaming experience was, but it was definitely Apple two plus. I mean, I predate you a little bit, but, uh, um, the, the luxury of being able to play a game at home instead of going out to an arcade uh, yeah. was just, and not having to drop a quarter, which we could barely afford, uh, was just this amazing thing. And the first yeah. kid to get Pac-Man, man, was he popular. <laughs> <laughs> so now you you talked about how you were trying to balance athletics in high school and and gaming. And, and one of your investments is Play Versus, yeah. uh, in which... This is a league uh, 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 for high school e-sports. And and one of the players, it's a guy named uh, Nick Montreff, goes to Lambert High School or went to Lambert High School, joins the school's Rocket League team, gets a scholarship to the University of Akron to play Rocket League. He's playing video games on a college scholarship.
1: Going to college for esports and getting a scholarship for that, it feels amazing.
0: This is a promo video for Play Versus.
1: I'm Nick Montreef, and I'm going to the University of Akron to play Rocket League esports.
0: And this is his principal. I've been hearing about gaming
1: for some time, and for me, it's a no-brainer. Just thinking about how that would be so relevant for many of our kids. I love it. I mean, it's such a it's such a special and interesting company in so many ways, but... Um, you know, being able to combine sort of personal passions and sort of, you know, what we talked about just in terms of my upbringing and seeing that translate into sort of what I get to do on a day-to-day basis professionally and work with amazing people that are doing really interesting things, you know, play versus the way I think about play versus is they've really started out with the first fully sanctioned esports platform. Right and So yeah, that- and I'm
0: trying to let's get an analogy to the listener. Is it are they sort of the big ten of eSports or the NCAA of eSports or what what's our analogy there?
1: Yeah, not not really. I mean, it it's there is no analogy, which is so interesting, right? it It's sort of a combination of um you think about like football or you know, volleyball or even some of the other high school, you know, sanctioned activities like debate, sure. right? It's sort of combining that with different IPs within that. You can think of Rocket League, League of Legends, some of the some of the IP and, and developers and publishers that they partnered with, with a conference like a like a Big Ten, combined with like you think about what it means to um, actually play and execute on that sport, right? And so there's the whole matchmaking infrastructure. There's all the scoring, there's all the identity and, and sort of logging in and having that, you know, having that student athlete, um, have an identity within that world and you kind of compress it all into one. Right. And Mm -hmm. nobody's ever really seen anything like this before. And I, I think in some ways you can draw analogies to traditional sports and activities in some ways you just can't. Right. And so, um, what's interesting is a lot of schools have, have resources around this. They already have a computer lab. You know, most schools are already, uh, the vast majority of schools are already connected to the internet. Um, and then you think about the player base, right? And um, I could be outdated on these statistics, but there's something like 40% of all high school students here in the US participate in some sort of sanctioned activity, whether it be sports or whether it be, you know, like I said, speech and debate or things like that. Um, and you compare that to the number of high schoolers here in the U.S. that are playing some sort of game. Throughout Which the- is
0: close to 100%. Yeah, exactly.
1: And there's a big gap there, right? And the fact that you can kind of combine those two worlds and really use it as a way to uh, both keep kids sort of engaged within that academic and sanctioned and high school setting, uh, but also do it in a way where, uh, you know, look, the the one thing that... Um, I will say is like gaming in general has this history and tradition. We talked a little bit about Activision Blizzard of being a bit of a toxic environment, right? And not necessarily a super diverse environment. And play versus is really focused on this idea of like, we actually want to bring diversity in here. We want to bring to bear a lot of the positive qualities of participating in a high school sport, right? I learned a lot from being a swimmer in high school, uh, both from my high school team and my club team thinking about, time management, persistence, the value of hard work, um, working with coaches, having teammates, things like that. And you traditionally haven't had that in gaming, right? You know, I think like the the view that a lot of people have of gaming is like, like exactly sort of how I grew up, which was two in the morning sitting in my room at my computer in the dark, you know, chatting with friends over the internet and uh, playing games that way. And it's just very and- different now. And 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 play versus can can in a in a club
0: or a team in a high school that is a video game competitive club then gives that kid a sense of belonging the same way the kid on exactly. the debate team has a sense of belonging or the same yeah. way a kid on the varsity football team does. Yeah. And it's a so,
1: fully it's a fully co ed experience. Yeah, that's
0: um, yes, that was gonna be my next point is that it's one of those rare sports in which it can be entirely co ed.
1: Yes. Yeah, and that's a that's very much a feature that is um, that is prominently uh, pushed, and and you know we've seen a lot of high school championship teams that are coed, which is so
0: great. Uh, so a principal you know thinks I want to create a an esports team, and so she would she would work with play versus to make that happen. Right. Now I I can't think of another instance, and but I'm you know I may be naive about it. In which a for-profit company is involved in a public school's athletic program. In that way,
1: you've got a you've got a handful of for-profit um, companies in the ecosystem. Whether it comes around content, there's a lot actually a lot of content companies, right? So you're starting to see a lot of companies that pop up around, you know, um, broadcasting high school sports, for example, or analyzing uh, student athletes for purposes of recruiting for example. Um, you have all sorts of companies, uh, for, for-profit companies that are focused on equipment, maintenance, sure. things like that. Um, it, it, again, it's it's sort of a an interesting new paradigm, right? Because, like I said, you can't really draw analogies to it. Um, but a lot of what Playversus is bringing is they're bringing that structure, they're bringing a lot of the technology architecture there that helps scale something like this build out the matchmaking infrastructure build out sort of the scoring systems the scheduling mm-hmm. um onboard a lot of the users and the teams and at the same time you know play versus has partnered very closely with the the uh, publishers and developers of of these games right to have a an actual official license to allow a lot of these players to to play these and participate in these tournaments
0: I would imagine as a venture capitalist that, you know, we've, we've been struggling to to find analogies in the case of play versus that that might be a sign of a good investment. When, yeah. when you say, I can't find a good analogous uh, way of explaining this, th- that might be a really good sign. It's not, Absolutely. The Uber, it's not the Uber of anything or the Netflix of anything.
1: Right, exactly. And, and um, we love those opportunities. And and certainly what we do uh is, is a game from a, from a pure investing standpoint is a game of risk reward, right? And especially in the venture capital asset class, you know, we're willing to take on a lot of risk if that means there's a ton of opportunity out there, right? And when there is something that, you know, we do a lot of pattern matching as venture capital investors to kind of say like, okay, you know, what's worked in the past? Will this work in the future? Um, but there's also just these, these outliers that that are hard to quantify and hard to really draw analogies to. Um, I will say look you know in, in the esports world I actually think there's probably been a little bit too much too too much pattern matching and trying to match it to traditional sports and I think it's been a good thing for the industry overall because it gave it legitimacy it's still you know esports broadly not just thinking about play versus is still in sort of its infancy, and and um, even though it's pretty nascent, has grown very very rapidly. And I think part of it is because there's been a lot of analogies to traditional sports. I think sort of the the next step for the esports industry as a whole is to really start defining itself as different than traditional sports, and that's where I think you're going to see some native experiences that you know people really haven't thought about or talked about that could really take it to the next level.
0: You do uh, consumer tech for your firm NEa. there There are a lot of forces uh, making consumer tech. An interesting space for entrepreneurs right now. With people spending more time at home, they got more money to spend because they're not necessarily spending it on travel or other expenses. Uh, A good example of that is one of your investments is is MasterClass, Mm -hmm. uh, which I, you know, I signed up for pretty much when when COVID started because I had the time on my hand. And MasterClass, for those who have not seen the ads, is is you know our lessons from really high-end, intelligent leaders in their space. So it might be a famous book author uh, teaching uh, 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 book writing or a very famous chef teaching cooking.
1: And the bouquet garni is basically our herbs
0: and vegetables, spices... I assume you saw some spikes during the height of the lockdown, but then, you know, I've also read that Peloton is, is now reconsidering a lot of its uh, businesses and its spaces, its uh, retail, et cetera, as they see this sort of tail off a little bit. Are you seeing, you know, you've got to be able to, you've got to be able to handle the spike, but you've also got to be able to handle a trough as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, I think taking a step back and then we can jump into Masterclass more specifically, you know, uh, the pandemic has been interesting for our business overall as venture capital investors because a lot of trends have accelerated. Um, Ultimately, it's just caused a ton of uncertainty in a lot of different businesses. And consumer businesses, I think, um, especially have been... Pretty volatile because of a lot of things that you mentioned. I think the the great thing for us as both investors and partners with these companies is that we take a very long term view, right? As shareholders of a company, we've been investors in MasterClass now for six plus years. I want to say, um, and you know, when we first invested in them, nobody had ever heard of them. That's the the beauty and joy of what I get to do is now. You know, when you see a Masterclass trailer, you kind of know who it is and 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 the company behind it. Um, you know, what was interesting for Masterclass is certainly there was a boost from people staying at home, kids not being able to go to school. Um, I think it played into uh, the overall sort of trend and thesis for Masterclass, which is really pioneering a completely new category of of company, which is edutainment right? Which is like, look, as we talked about, content is king. Um, And uh, if you can create proprietary high quality content that feels more fulfilling than other content that you might be watching, you know, people feel good about that. They want to be able to share some of the experiences and some of the things they've learned through Masterclass with their friends, right? They want their kids to be Watching master classes, whether it be about you know Steph Curry and basketball, or it could be about photography, or cooking, or writing, right? Um, and and these are kind of very fulfilling topics that that um, if you might not be able to attend school in person, you might want. I think at the same time, honestly, though, um, master classes brand was just starting to take off from a mainstream perspective too. And so you had these compounding factors of a company just hitting that inflection point in terms of brand, combined with some of these more macro forces of people being at home looking for ways to kind of entertain themselves, but also educate themselves. Um, so it was it was a very good year for for masterclass. And You know, frankly, for a lot of our companies that are even our later stage companies, as we think about them like a masterclass, it's such a drop in the bucket in terms of market share awareness that they might have that these macro factors will affect them. But, um, you know, they're going to continue seeing growth if they've hit product market fit for a big enough audience uh, because there's just so much opportunity out there. So, while, you know, I would say 2020 was a fantastic year for us. At Masterclass, 2021 was also a growth year, right? And we expect the same thing to happen in 2022, too, because of the fundamentals of the company and sort of the, the long-term nature of it.
0: It is interesting in entertainment, and I was talking to Nicole Quinn from um, a different firm about this, from Lightspeed Ventures, uh, that... We used to think of entertainment as being, you know, TV, radio, movies, and then we could maybe subdivide that in the TV to NBC, CBS, HBO, that sort of thing. But now the entertainment is Masterclass or Tinder or TikTok or Netflix, the things that we or Robin Hood. Or Robin Hood, isn't that interesting? Right. Because it's entertaining. That's one of the appeals of Robin Hood—to uh, uh, to be entertained and sort of gamified by by watching what is fundamentally a line graph of your
1: investment. Yeah, no, I th- I think entertainment has completely shifted, right? And there is sort of this um, c- consumer companies are all about attention. Right, it's how much, how much attention for a given consumer and a size of audience in a given day can you capture? Right, and it used to be largely TV, right? It used to be largely radio as you were kind of like sitting in your commute or even sitting at home, um, and that's shifted. You know, gaming is a prime example of this. Um, streamers are a prime example of this. And I think that a lot of companies are thinking about, uh, what are those, what are those market opportunities that as you look down into the future could be very much mass market, but today are very targeted towards a very passionate niche. Right. And Um, I always, uh, just kind of taking a step back, I always think about one of the best examples of a consumer company that has done this to be Nike, right? And um, having having a shoe that was built for competitive and elite runners to what they are today, in terms of just being a cultural icon, um, mass market fashion brand, I think that to be able to look at that company, be inspired by it for a lot of our companies, like a Masterclass or like a Robin Hood or like many others, to to go after a really passionate niche, um, but in a big market opportunity, uh, the ones that break out can really kind of make a dent in, in the overall kind of consumer world.
0: Another one of your uh, portfolio companies that's blending things is uh, Spire Animation Studios, mm-hmm. where you've got the combination of the video games that we've talked about and then the movies and it's my understanding that more and more movie companies at least in their workflow are using video game engines the the things that create the graphics of the mountains and the and the the action and those sorts of things as movie making tools and creating something sometimes traditional movies but something sometimes something more
1: yeah and and The other thing I'd say about entertainment is it's no longer siloed, right? It's not about like you have this singular TV show that you watch and that's the only place where you consume that content or IP or whatever it may be. The same thing is happening with movies, right? It's not just about movies. It's movies that have video games attached to those, to that IP and those characters that were originated from a comic book, for example, right? right? And so, you know... Um, Spire is really taking on this idea that if you start from the premise that, you know, we're not a studio that is just making an animated feature film, but we are all about taking uh, this creative and uh, really building a complete universe around it, Part of that is going to be a feature feature length animated film. Part of that might be, a video game. Part of that might be a TV show. Part of that might be, um, some sort of audio content only, right. For those characters. But if you start from that premise and then you combine it with a lot of the, uh, the technological advances that have happened around game engines and content creation engines that really help you in real time, you know, proliferate this universe. And, and, and um, thinking about it at an IP level or an idea, idea level or a, or a character level, um, and then combining that with the idea of, you know, what people think of as the metaverse. And really what the metaverse to me is, is just the, the blending of sort of what we do IRL or in real life um, with all of the different digital interactions that we have throughout the day. Right. And so that's a
0: much more interesting explanation of the metaverse that I think I've heard because, you know, again, we go back to, it's so hard to create an analogy to explain what true believers in the metaverse believe, right. you know, that your, your brain immediately goes to, oh yeah, it's virtual reality and you just renamed it. Right. Um, but I think that the true believers are saying, no, no, it's more than that, but I haven't got something analogous to, to explain it with.
1: Yeah. And I think that, you know, Immediately, like people go to sort of the Ready Player One type of mm-hmm. type of thought when it comes to metaverse, which is like this singular thing that people are immersed in and and are just kind of like you know with their with their face in a headset. I I do think that as we kind of evolve this idea, as we see more of what's happening, and frankly, like if you talk to a lot of these companies that are quote unquote metaverse companies, I think they're starting to realize this too, which is like. Today, our lifestyles, as as a consumer, our lifestyles are so blended and complementary between offline and online experiences that I think the idea of the metaverse really is like everyday life, right? And how do you make those experiences more seamless, more beneficial to the consumer, um, more valuable to the consumer? And I think companies that take that Viewpoint are actually going to have some great adoption versus you know kind of taking the idea of like as a as a singular company I'm going to build quote unquote the metaverse and everything has to be proprietary to what I build um, I think that's a much harder road to to go down to to try to build um, an experience for a consumer just because consumers want best in class experiences for everything that they do. Right, And the more you can interoperate with all of those other experiences, um, I think the better. Rick Yang, general partner at venture firm
0: NEA. Next week on Sand Hill Road.
1: Skiing wasn't quite high on there.
0: You know, it was math, science, math, science. (laughs) As the Winter Olympics get underway, we talk to ski nut Samir Call from Coastal Ventures about ski moguls and Silicon Valley moguls. Sand Hill Road is produced by Sean Myers under the leadership of Sarah Bueno and Stephanie Adruni. For more interviews with Silicon Valley's most influential entrepreneurs, check me out on TV at Press Here. That's Sunday mornings on NBC Bay Area and everywhere in the world on iTunes and at PressHereTV.com.